Good afternoon, everybody. This is the last panel, so bear with us. It's uh, the analyst panel. These guys uh, provide all the information uh, to all the investors, and uh, they play a very important part in uh, uh, stocks. It's uh, my opportunity as a CEO today to, to ask them questions. Usually, they ask me questions. Uh, I'd like to know, starting, what exactly do you guys do, uh, Donald? What exactly do you do? Describe to us a typical day in your office and what you do. Um, sure. So I'd say first, Donald McLeaf from Berenberg Capital Markets. Um, on a typical day, I wake up, kind of check news, see if any new data came out or companies made any press re released any press releases. Um, depending on what that data was, that might lead the morning for the day, you know, writing about that and talking to clients about that. Um, outside of that, I think it's um, more just kind of a little bit of maintenance work, updating models, looking at where market rates are, checking industry news, um, and then also kind of getting on the phones, talking with investors and corporates and trying to get some, either flesh out some ideas you might have for a new research piece or sometimes those conversations lead to uh, new ideas. So much, how, much, how much of your time do you spend talking to people, to industry partners, and how much of your time is really writing reports, reading reports, listening to the news? Uh, it's hard to say. It depends if it's during kind of earnings seasons or not. I think on a typical day outside of earnings season, it's a lot more being on the phone and talking to people in the industry. But I think uh, when companies are announcing, it's a lot more into the, in the weeds and kind of just focusing on the models and getting research out. So what's the fun part of your business, of your job? Um, so I'd say the fun part for me specifically is we run a pretty lean shop. So I have all the responsibility, but then also get all the praise. Okay. So, so the, the bad thing about your job is what? Reading too much? Uh, <laughs> um, having to do all of it. It can be bad, but then it can be rewarding down the line. Okay. Anybody from uh, the panel wants to add a point on this? I think uh, time management skills are one of the major traits for a shipping analyst. And one of the fun parts is that your time management plan always uh, is uh, destroyed basically the, time, the minute you come into the office. That can be annoying as well, so both fun and annoying. But uh, um, as long as you have good time management skills, you always manage to get back on, the, on your plan, and then you can continue working as you were. But for me, at least, I come into the office. Um, I usually go home to my family to eat dinner. And then I have uh, the second round of the day, uh, the second leg, which is at night. And then that's when I'm usually uh, the most productive because then it's uh, fewer distractions. So, so overall, is it a satisfying job? Is it something you like doing, you love doing? You feel that you influence the markets? It's something that you really like, or is it a, a stepping stone towards something else? Uh, it's, it's something <laughs> I love. I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it. So this is uh, something that gets me, uh, gets me up in the morning, definitely. Yeah. Very fun job, uh, very dynamic, a lot of autonomy. You know, uh, nobody's saying, oh, you have to give this rating or give this price target. Um, Enjoying the relationships with people, clients, uh, and management teams, sales team over at Jeffries. So in that regard, it's definitely a, a fun and rewarding uh, job. And 
Do you talk mostly to institutional investors, ship owners like us that pressure you to come up with a nice report on us? Uh, where, where does the pressure come from? Your bosses that want to see results and people trading? Uh, where, where does the pressure come from? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> when you downgrade a stock, uh, always the ship owners, they, are really, they get really upset, especially international ship owners. Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the audience, not me. But, uh, you don't cover us, so. so. <laughs> no, I, I, I think this is a, this is a great job. Uh, it's a great job because uh, somebody's paying you to, to give your opinion. And if it's right, it's fantastic. If it's wrong, you lose no money. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 50-50 usually this. If you are 51% uh, right and you manage to identify some opportunity, something that other people have not seen or something that some people might have not seen but they might have not uh, spent, uh, put a lot of attention to, you feel uh, great. You feel that uh, you have discovered uh, America. Yes, the, the, this, is, this is something I find very intriguing that you try to, to, to give a report of not what has happened but what will happen in the future. And uh, we all know how shipping is a very cyclical business and it's extremely difficult to predict the future. I mean, uh, I'm involved in, t in two sectors and I can't do that. But you are supposed to be able to do it in, you know, six or seven or eight different things. But this is not the most important thing of our job. I don't think that uh, investors, they care so much about uh, us predicting uh, the future. I mean, it's nice when you are successful, but... Uh, uh, they can uh, do a better job, otherwise uh, the roles would be reversed. We would be investing the money and uh, they would be doing our jobs. But uh, uh, what we have to do is to, to try to see what are the drivers for, uh, for its stock, what are the drivers for its industry, to identify one, two, three important points that uh, will make uh, the stock to move in one way or another. Whether the, w one of these uh, points will work out, I think the, the, the decision is on uh, the investor. But people ask you, if oil prices go up or uh, if OPEC cuts production, which sector is gonna be affected? This is gonna be the crew tankers, the product tankers, and then they can make the decision and they will want to know which stock is more levered to one uh, driver, which stock is uh, more levered to another. Ben, how do you compare yourselves amongst yourselves? I mean, you all are in the same business. Do you read the reports of everybody else and then write your own, trying to, to find a compromise? Do you try to be totally analytic and look at each company without taking uh, into account what everybody else does? I only read Fotis' reports. <laughs> yeah. I don't get yours. <laughs> no, uh, I, I try not to, um, and, and I do, from time to time, somebody will send me a report saying, hey, did you see this? Y usually I don't even look at it for that reason. Uh, I, I, like, um, I, I want to try to um, be as unbiased as I can be. Uh, and, and I will say, because it's no fun if everybody agrees, I will say I differ a little bit with Fotis and just the, having, having uh, themes. Like I take it very, like if I have a, a buy rating on something in the stock tanks, which <coughs> happens a lot, um, I, I take it very seriously. Like 
uh, I still have a job and I'm still employed, but uh, there are there are people, and, and in my firm, there's a lot of retail investors who look at a report that I write and think that it is, you know, it's it's some sort of holy, you know, scripture, right? That that this is this is the way that things will definitely be, and uh, and I I you know I, I don't want people to lose money uh, it, on my opinions, right? So. Joy team, do you want to add something? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with Ben. So, uh, and also, uh, 40, was it? Uh, with the 51%? Because, by in theory, if you're 51% right, you add value. But we uh, obviously aim to, to add more value than that. So, when you have the kind of the valley incident, the, the tragic dam collapse, we, I think, at least, I can't speak for everyone, but I think most of us uh, didn't foresee that event. So when it happens, obviously our target prices, our recommendations are wrong, my, our estimates are wrong. So uh, then we uh, add value to our clients by issuing reports, continuously updating them on recent events. And I think that's one of our biggest jobs. And for myself, I, I think I issued 20 reports on the Valley incident alone in the past few months. Who reads your reports, Randy? Who reads the reports? Uh, is it the institutional investors or is it the retail investors? How it's usually the shipping companies that they read the reports. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just us that read the reports? Because, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's all of the above. You know, we have this kind of blue matrix um, uh, software, and it kind of tells us who's reading the reports, how often they're reading them, when they're reading them, all these things. Um, so we have a lot of analytical data uh, around that. And right, it is shipping management teams for sure. Um, it's a lot of institutional investors, some long onlys, a lot of hedge funds, um, definitely some retail, family offices, um, individual investors, all of the above. So it's definitely a diverse um, audience in that regard. And then as kind of Ben was saying, our job, uh, at least at Jeffries, 40% of my kind of analyst scorecard and, and compensation, all these things, are based on you know my picks. 20% on stock performance, 20% on earnings estimate accuracy. So there's a lot of pressure to be right, uh, both internal and then external. Investors want you to give them good recommendations, right? And it's it's very objective because you can see if you have a buy on this, how did the stock perform? You said the EPS was going to be 22 cents last quarter. What was it? You know. So it's very black or white, um, very objective public job. So right. So. You do, all of you, I think, the, most of the analysts that I've seen, they have more recom buy recommendations than sell recommendations. Despite that fact, you know, we have an industry where all the stocks are trading significantly below their NAV and below where you guys say that they, they should be. So I cannot blame you for the industry not being better and stronger as, as all us uh, think it should be since uh, owning the companies and comparing prices to NAV. What is the reason for this uh, lag that we see? It's, it's not you. You, you, you publish generally a little bit more bullish reports than, uh, than where the prices are. What are the reasons? Is it the cyclicality? Is it the small uh, size of the companies? We had this discussion in the previous panel as well, but it's interesting to listen to, to, to the analysts' view on that. Donald? Sure. Um, I think cyclicality and company size are both factors, but I also think um, maybe trying to get 
the message of, of people to understand the shipping sector to a broader audience is also something that's hard when they look at kind of how the stocks have traded and trying to understand some of the complexities of the industry. I think sometimes they have a hard time wrapping their head around it. And then when you look at things like the company size, some people say, you know, this is an interesting idea, but it might not make the most sense for my firm. Um, on the cyclicality side, I think that uh, in a bull market or in a healthier market, I think people, it's kind of easier to get people to look at the sectors. But I think when things are challenging or emerging from a challenging time, that's when it's uh, most complicated. Joy Kim? Uh, I think uh, I, I think it's difference, different reasons between the different uh, segments at the moment. For for instance, in drive, it's it's an, I think an expectation priced into the current uh, pricing of the shares of potentially a further downside to the asset prices and also deteriorating uh, vessel economics. So I think that explains a lot. Uh, that said, I think some of the shares like Genko trading implicitly. 15% below uh, all-time lows on the vessel value is, is too much. That's why I have a buy recommendation. I think uh, Gold Notion, which is trading at a 30% discount to its now versus a premium historically, it's, 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 it's too low. So that's why we consistently have buy ratings because the market has sold off too much. When it comes to oil tankers, I think it's a different story. You have rising asset prices and the, the, the sentiment has, has shifted. Still, we see uh, uh, shares tra trading below now. And I think one of the reasons is the ghost of um, trade war. Although oil tankers is not the segment that's going to be hardest hit by the oil war uh, or trade war, uh, not at all, but uh, it is still uh, hanging over the whole shipping segment. Um, so I think if you get a situation where uh, that trade war uh, goes, uh, goes away, uh, I think it's going to help the whole uh, NAV uh, pricing or in every segment. Foti, uh, do you agree with that? I mean, for me, as a ship owner, uh, I see that the people that really know the business do the business. They buy and sell ships at NAV, but in the stock markets, we do it at 50% of NAV today, roughly. Is that the reason, the, the trade wars? What's the reason? The size? I think the uh, market is not uh, that naive as uh, a lot of the ship owners uh, think. And market usually tries to see forward, tries to see what's going to happen the next six months, the next uh, 12 months. Uh, Obviously, the market, especially for dry bulk, tells uh, us right now that uh, NAVs are not real. And I think that a lot of uh, ship owners also agree. That's why we do not have transactions right now. We see NAVs uh, from Clarkson's, from uh, vessel values, uh, but uh, we do not see ship owners uh, act on these uh, prices. So perhaps uh, something is wrong with these prices. Uh, they are backward looking and uh, the uh, shareholders are trying to see forward. But there is an additional reason. The, the, the problem is that right now, the industry does not have an audience. And uh, the audience of this industry used to be hedge funds that they were focused uh, primarily on energy. The energy market does not have uh, specialized investors. And of course, the big companies in the energy market, uh, they still have a following, but not from specialized energy health funds as they used to be four or five years ago, before 2015, actually, when uh, 14, when uh, oil collapsed. Right now, you have a lot of generalists. So the investors that they look at energy, uh, they also look at uh, technology. They look at healthcare. It's a much harder sell 
to uh, try to convince a, a generalist investor to buy a dry bulk shipping company with no earnings or a tanker company that uh, has been uh, comparatively much better when you have a volatility of a charter rate of 120%, annualized volatility in the charter rate, and annualized asset value volatility of 35%. This is an extremely volatile business, and uh, for us trying to claim that uh, we can predict uh, the future, uh, I think uh, we should be a little bit more cautious on the uh, promises that we make. No, I think, uh, and I can express my views as I'm moderating, so... That's why I'm doing it, really. <laughs> but, but I think that uh, the size of the industry is small, as Hemi said in the previous, in the, in the previous uh, panel. You know, the total value of all dry bulk is around 70 billion, I think he said, or something like that. It's still not a huge number, and the biggest company is just 1%. So obviously the companies are small, and the small companies cannot appeal to the institutional, the big institutional investors. The audience for this size of companies should be much smaller investors, family offices, retail investors, things like that, perhaps. I think that's uh, something that we should try to attract more. How much is the retail participation in, in the shipping business? Does anybody of you know? So, so, uh, if you allow me, there is this uh, audience, but it's not uh, common equity investors necessarily. You see that there is a lot of institutional money that they try to get into other parts of the capital structure, on the financing side, on the mezzanine uh, side, private equity investors. Th th there is that. Uh, it's something that 15 years ago did not exist at all. It's just that when you buy the first loss, it's a, uh, liquidity is much more important right now than it used to be three, four uh, years ago. If you do not uh, have the ability to exit, that's why the, the little investor's interest has been concentrated in one or two companies in each sector except of dry bulk. Ben, uh, do you want to add something on all that? I mean, I, I'll mention also governance, which has also been consider an issue sometimes uh, that maybe that's one of the reasons why we are underperforming. Yeah, I think governance is an issue. We can address that maybe a little bit more broadly in a minute. I, I, I think that another, um, another challenge is that, again, for many broader investors, or maybe they're, they're even to some extent specialists, uh, they have been hearing from guys like us or from the management teams for years uh, espousing how great the opportunity has been. And NAV, whether or not you're trading at a premium to NAVs, the, the shares have not performed well. And uh, in, in this great, you know, bull market has not delivered. And um, uh, I certainly think there is investor fatigue. Um, and and furthermore, I think that the, the industry as a whole, for governance reasons or otherwise, uh, has something of a bad reputation for not, not being capital disciplined. And there is a fear, I know, because I hear from investors all the time. There's a fear that, you know, when, when the market starts to get very good or stocks start to trade close to NAV, 
people are, ship owners are going to lose all capital discipline. They're going to go out and order ships. And before you even really get a chance to participate in a, in a legitimate bull market, uh, the whole thing's going to roll over. So what's your real upside? You're in a bad market now. And if your best case scenario is just sort of ho-hum, well, they can do ho-hum anywhere, right? They don't need to be in shipping. Joachim, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I think uh, Ben is really on, on to the issue here because uh, last dry bulk cycle, at least in 2013-14, uh, you had a lot of generalist money coming in, and they ordered a lot of new buildings, and they, that basically cut the sh uh, cycle short. So uh, now trying to raise kind of capital or, and getting investors excited about dry bulk uh, was hard last year. Uh, this year, uh, after uh, the fourth quarter disappointed, uh, against all predictions, after the Dal uh, incident, Valley incident happened. So the risk premium investors now are tying to this uh, segment is so much higher than it was just uh, one year ago or may maybe seven years ago. So to get that capital uh, and to get investors to uh, invest in, in so illiquid uh, shares with low free float and, and so on, I think it's uh, become a much uh, grander challenge than uh, it has been in many years. Sure. And then to add to that, you know, you, you tell the story of these attractive uh, outlooks um, for certain stocks, the investors all about it, then they pull up the chart on Bloomberg or FactSet or whatever, and they say, oh, I can't show this to my PM when the chart's down and to the right, right? Um, so they just, hey, we'll miss the first 15, 20% upside, and then we'll get in, kind of. So there's a lot of interest, uh, maybe on the sidelines, in that, I'm not going to jump into this falling knife. Let's see it start to rebound a few quarters in a row, and then we'll get in. Yes, of, of course, in, in, in dry bulk, we saw in 2016, we saw shares collapse. Uh, a lot of companies in the brink of, uh, of uh, you know, going Chapter 11 and bankruptcy. But uh, at the end of the day, at the end of that year, if you looked at the stock performance, it was spectacular. But not many people invested in it, but it was spectacular. Shipping is like that. I mean, you know it uh, very well. Uh, we have many, many years when the returns are suboptimal, and then suddenly we see a couple of good years. I think that the, my, my own view is that uh, the capital markets, uh, in order to show appreciation for shipping, they need to see earnings come back, and they need to see them come back and stay for one or two quarters, or something like that. And I think that's, Forty, the difference why we see that uh, the NAVs are higher than the actual uh, stock values, because the NAVs are people that are there for the longer term. So they see that there is a value in an asset looking 10, 15 years uh, down the line. The usual investors in shipping, they only have a, a six months or a year uh, horizon. A and if they can't see the profit, then they will not invest. And I think this is one of the main reasons why we have this discrepancy. But anyway, it's just, not about just me. Just to add, though, that uh, if the market does not come back uh, soon, in a year or whatever it, it is, this NAV is being eaten by the negative earnings. Oh, of course. So but. Uh, and I, and you know, I market is, is puts a, a, a NAV discount both because asset price might drop, but also because of the negative earnings that they are uh, eating the cash position. Believe, believe me, the ship owner also calculates mm -hmm. that it, he will lose money for a year, but still he thinks the NAV is higher. 
But anyway, let's not spend too much time on this. We have just uh, 13 minutes left, and I want to ask your opinion about the future. I don't want you to tell us about individual stocks. I just want to tell us about individual sectors, because I believe this is really uh, all companies have a, a very all tribal companies trade very similarly. Some are better, some are worse. But the major thing that uh, that, that uh, concerns us is how the market will do. We are all market takers in this business. So starting from you, uh, Donald, can you rate dry bulk, wet, containers, LNG, and offshore? Which one you think will do the better? till the, the end of this year, um, and how much better? That's the tough part to answer, but... Okay, um, but, but just rank them in yeah. Yeah, your preference. Uh, I'd say in terms of my preference, L&D is probably the easiest one to see as a sector that outperforms just based on the amount of liquefaction capacity that's coming online and kind of the intermediate term supply gap where there won't be a lot of vessels, well, there's a lot of vessels delivering this year, but in 2020 and 2021, I think there's limited supply growth. Um, okay, LNG is one. Yeah, I'd say maybe in terms of sectors that I think are going to have the toughest or the most challenging time for the next 12 months, it's probably offshore, and just because it's so so tied to commodity pricing. Okay, and between dry, wet, and containers, how would you rank them? Um, depending on the timing of any potential resolution around the U.S.-China trade tariff situation, I think containers is, po is poised to outperform. Um, after that, I'd say pro I probably have the tanker sector next, and that's just with the potential for um, some supply disruption on the IMO 2020 side, and maybe some relief as vessels slow down, and then that be uh, next would be dry bulk. Okay, thank you very much. Let's move to Joachim. Uh, yes, uh, I just wanted to know that containers and offshore is uh, covered by my colleagues, so uh, so I don't have a view on that here today, but um, I think I'll start at the bottom. So. Uh, dry bulk is, is um, ranking the lowest, but we still have uh, a 56% upside over the next year in, uh, on our dry 56 bulk. 56% upside? Yes, correct, okay. on our uh, dry bulk share index. Th uh, th that's the point I was making. The analysts are optimistic. Let's hope that yeah. they are right. But uh, the reason it's ranking the lowest is um, because uh, the risk is extremely high in dry bulk. So when you adjust for the risk, we get the lowest sharp ratio in our range. Okay. Uh, but still, um, we are also very positive towards LNG carriers uh, and VLGCs. Uh, I think the LNG carriers, they, uh, they, they're, they're uh, closing in on the second year in a row with close to double digit supply growth. So that would be a concern in many markets. But what we see on the demand side is, is uh, new liquefaction projects coming online. Uh, we see um, actually there, uh, there are some of these projects are front-running the, the delivery of vessels, which uh, is a, a rare um, situation in LNG carriers. Uh, so um, uh, last year we had all-time high spot rates for a very brief moment. So uh, we, we think it's uh, going to continue to rise. And for VLGCs, we think the U.S. exports are going to uh, really support that sector uh, in 2019. I mean, so you do see several consecutive years of improvements for VLGCs. So we actually have 103% uh, upside uh, in VLGCs and 97% upside for our covered LNG, LNG carriers. So wow. these are big numbers, but um, you got to remember that this uh, is cyclical and 
um, when these shares start to move with the, with the cycle, they move fast. So this is based on our uh, mathematical econometric models. Uh, topic, oil tankers. Oil tankers. Yeah, we have a massive 145% upside. It's Did you listen to that audience? 145% <laughs> upside uh, in a year. It's, it's what we have, and I can, uh, if anyone uh, needs to see the calculations, please uh, reach out. Uh, I'll, I'll go through, uh, through it with you. Uh, so the reason is um, very low supply growth. We have uh, extremely good demand growth, even with, with the OPEC plus quotas, uh, quotas in place. Uh, we have the IMO 22 kicker coming in uh, with the vengeance from 2020. I think we will see oil product tankers really performing well next year. Uh, so we are very optimistic towards oil, 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 oil tankers for uh, Eddie, can you year. listen? So uh, with a sharp ratio of almost four on oil tankers. That's, uh, it's, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen, seen those kind of numbers. Thank you. Randy, do you share that optimism that bo both these guys said that the markets will be better at the end of the year than what they are? And it's hard not to being at the dearth levels we are now, and, and my blood type is B positive, so uh, might as well be a little <laughs> optimistic. Um, yeah, I, I kind of share their sentiments. Um, the first would probably be wet tankers, um, both crude and refined products. Uh, I think everybody wins there with IMO 2020. You're already seeing kind of a further dislocation of an already diverse crude and product trade, uh, new routes developing pretty much weekly uh, that we've haven't seen in a decade plus. The certainty of demand um, on tankers is um, very high. The conviction there and the timing of the improvement, uh, I think, after you get through refinery maintenance season, maybe that starts kicking up in May, April, um, or sorry, May, June, maybe July. Second would be LNG, same thing. You know, you, you have come off dramatically from 180,000 a day, let's call it in December, to 35,000 a day now. You don't get to 35 if you didn't get to 180, so a lot of that was kind of pulled for demand. Um, you know, we think with all the liquefaction facilities coming online this year, slowdown in, in new build deliveries later this year, so we think by the end of this year, you get rates back to 80, maybe 100,000 a day. Uh, again, a lot of seasonal effects there. Um, and then third, I'd say dry bulk. Valuations are definitely low. They're baking in Vale offline for multiple years. We think Vale is offline for a couple quarters. Um, you know, we are bearish, I guess, in terms of short-term rates and fundamentals in that regard. But the equities are, are bearish for forever, it seems. Uh, so that's kind of our top three picks. So containers and offshore are the two worst ones. Um, yeah, I guess containers. Uh, I just feel like it's the risk reward is both minimal. Uh, maybe the reward's minimal, and the, and the risk in terms of when you think U.S.-China trade war, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, you think, well, who facilitates that trade? And it's container ships, right? So, uh, especially coming from the Far East. Um, you could argue that they are above dry bulk uh, in the next six months, so that's fine. Uh, so either dry bulk container, let's call it tie for third, and then offshore at the end. We don't cover any offshore companies, so 40. by default. I think that for the next couple of years, there are a couple of uh, themes that they uh, surround the, the shipping industry, that they drive the shipping industry. Uh, the first one is obviously the IMO 2020, and the implication that it's gonna have uh, for all sectors, primarily the crude tanker market. The second theme is the growing, uh, the expansion of the, of the US as an exporter of hydrocarbons. And this, 
uh, is not only for uh, oil, it's uh, for products, it's for crude, it's for LNG, it's for LPG. Uh, my view for shipping, if, if we narrow it down, uh, is that uh, my best sector would be LPG. It's coming uh, from uh, two, three very weak years. What is changing right now is that the U.S. is uh, growing its NGL production. Permian production is growing very rapidly. That creates oversupply of uh, natural gas liquids. Right now, we have certain uh, constraints in exporting uh, U.S. Uh, propane, uh, U.S. ethane, uh, and this is primarily infrastructure uh, constraints. There is no fractionation capacity suf sufficient enough. Uh, we do not have uh, a sufficient export terminals, but this is going to change, and it's going to change within the next uh, 12 months. When uh, usually shipping is an ARB business, so when you have a very low cost of uh, domestic production in one part of the world and very high price uh, of, uh, in another part of the world. And this is happening even today where the shipping rates are not that uh, strong. So I think this will uh, create significant demand for uh, VLGCs and all the gas uh, carriers. The second sector. Uh, along the same lines is uh, uh, the, the, the oil uh, tankers, both crude and products, because U.S. is producing more crude, it has uh, cheap uh, resources, and uh, because of the IMO 2020, will create the, the, the incremental demand from uh, the 1.3, 1.4 baseline uh, demand to produce more uh, distillates uh, so the refineries uh, will have to, to run uh, faster. I'm a little bit confused where, where if I should rank uh, on the third place uh, container ships uh, or uh, uh, a little bit uncertain uh, container ships of, uh, or LNG carriers. I think that LNG carriers, first of all, right now, prices are, uh, for LNG are a complete disaster. And, uh, uh, if you do not, if you have a low commodity prices, it's hard for sh the shipping business to make a lot of money. Shipping businesses, whatever is left between the price of the producer and the price of the consumer in the other part of the world, and this gap is very, very narrow. The other problem for LNG that I'm not, LNG shipping that I'm not extremely excited is, first of all, except of the new orders that they were placed the last 12 months. 66 uh, LNG carriers in 2018, record year of orders that they will hit the market for sure, is uh, the fact that this market is not liquid and is controlled by the producers and the major players. And if you go to, to the Chenier's of the world, that they will need a lot of ships to the Qataris, they will tell you, we are not gonna charter existing vessels. We are gonna give a five-year charter to build more ships. So the order book, is going to increase even further. So that makes it a, a little bit hard for the market, uh, for the LNG shipping market to make great uh, returns. I think that the container ship market next year has a good chance to, to be a, a good performer because the order book is uh, very low. Next year, based on our estimates, based on alpha liner estimates, the supply growth will drop below 3%. Why the 3% is that important? Because usually this market grows alongside with global GDP. So if uh, global GDP is more than 3% and most of the analyst uh, estimates is around 3.5%, we think that we're gonna have an improvement. And also, this is a market that is controlled by a few liner uh, operators. 
and these liner operators are not putting a lot of scrubbers, they will slow steam. So for one year or two, I think we're going to have an okay market. And you didn't say something about the dry bulk. I presume the previous three companies, uh, three sectors that you mentioned, you see share prices increasing. You see an improvement in values from where we are today, right? I think that the liquidity discount for the liquid stocks will remain high. But uh, I would expect, yes, they would uh, increase the larger companies, the more liquid companies, they will trade better. The smaller, more liquid companies, they will maintain a liquid discount. For dry bulk, I would expect, uh, before I touch this market, a major uh, event, a Hanjin event uh, type of event, some big bankruptcy where prices will uh, reset uh, at uh, more normalized levels to reflect the supply-demand outlook. I don't think that asset prices uh, reflect that. When this uh, big bankruptcy happens, obviously, a lot of uh, people will panic. Let's not forget that the balances for most of the dry bulk companies right now, despite the terrible market, are still very strong. Last year, it was a good year. Two years ago, everybody restructured their balances. They recapitalized the, the companies. Uh, the ones that they didn't go bankrupt. I think that we need another uh, reset before we touch uh, dry bulk. The Vale incident was a reset, I think, uh, but you expect an incident? Uh, I mean, from the ship owners' uh, side. Some, uh, I don't know, people are talking about uh, companies with VLOCs uh, that they have uh, financial difficulties, but there and, are going to be a lot offshore, of offshore, I presume, uh, because I see we're short on time, for offshore, I presume you're not very positive, or what's the... I do not uh, spend a lot of time on it. You don't offshore, spend so time on it, okay. Ben, you are the, the last one. Uh, I'll be quick. Yeah. Good. Um, so, I think... I, I think uh, Honestly, what I've learned over the years is sometimes psychology is more important than fundamentals. And um, I think that uh, to, like if I had to pick one sector and I had to put money on, this is probably going to be higher a year from now than it is right now, it probably is dry bulk. Uh, I can't tell you that I love dry bulk and I can't even tell you why dry bulk will probably be higher next year, other than it is just so awful that at some point, things that are awful don't stay that way. Um, you know, I, and, and I agree with some of the things about, you know, U.S. exports and all that kind of thing, but, but I think there is, a, outside of maybe IMO 2020, there's a lack of real uh, authentic um, belief in money behind it. And so I think I'm not as excited about the crude tanker market. I think it could be up, but I don't think that we close the NAV gap this year or next. Uh, I, I agree with Fotis about LNG. I think um, it's, it's okay, but that's probably the, the last area I'd put money in right now, frankly. Uh, I do like the LPG, though. I think that's, that's a little bit different. Um, so... Uh, and offshore, I think offshore kind of does nothing. I think it just kind of hangs out because people don't have any conviction there and they don't have any reason to have any conviction. And so you, that's, that's the real thing is people need to have a reason to buy some of these things. I think you could have reason to buy the dry bulk because it's awful. Uh, you could have reason to buy tankers because of IMO, but if that ends up you know, not being a big deal, then... then and containers? Containers. People don't care about containers, I'll be really That's honest. That's what I realize, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are a container company. 
one, one of our yeah. companies. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, no offense, but no problem. I, I get I get one container call for every 100 other calls. So right. Okay, guys. Well, thank you for your views. Uh, they are different. They are not the same. Uh, Donald thinks LNG is going to be number one. Two guys think uh, tankers are going to be number one. One guy thinks uh, dry bulk is going to be one, and the fourth is you think L LPG. Which would so so it's quite a variety. But if I try and take an average here, I would say that. Everybody thinks that the tankers will do decently. On dry bulk, it's divided, something very bad, something very well. Offshore is unanimous, not too good. And uh, containers and LNG, you know, so and so. But correct me if I'm wrong, when, when every, every company is going to do better than where it is today or, or, or not? Every sector. This wouldn't be shipping if tomorrow wasn't better than today, right? So that, that's exactly how we think as well. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, well, f is there any question? Yes. Thank you, Nicholas. So uh, it started to occur to me a long time ago, and I actually had done some of the maritime indexes for Nicholas at a point but that um, perhaps some companies, and whereas the horses are out of the barn, perhaps some companies really shouldn't have gone public, you know, and in a very volatile sector, perhaps the strongest. But I think the, 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 the charm of the bankers tend to coax owners into going public, and so, you know, that now you have a new god. You have the market's god, and it can be very capricious. So um, with values, you know, with the prices so low, Where's the um, owner strategies or principal strategies, perhaps, to, um, you know, um, scheme up going private again and uh, and and be, you know, and get control over your own lives and your companies and uh, and and you know, perhaps you talked about that and covered that ground. But um, so, what are your thoughts on that? Who wants to answer that question? I don't know about going private uh, again, but there's definitely been a disconnect between earnings and equities, and we've seen that. So we cover 28 shipping equities uh, at Jefferies. 21 of them have either repurchased shares or authorized a share repurchase program in the last five or six months. Um, so just today, I think DHT announced some more share repurchases. So that's going to be a common theme, especially with free cash flow and equities trading so poorly. In terms of taking it all the way private, um, you'd have to have a third party coming in and kind of forcing that issue. I don't think any public CEO is going to say, hey, let's just take this private. Let's stop the equity markets. We don't want that public uh, access to public capital. That's going to be difficult. It has happened before, but I think it really, it really probably the person to answer this question is you. I know. <laughs> I, 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 th I think that it's... Uh, it's worth being public even for a small company. If, if you're not looking at uh, capitalizing or, or on the equity that somebody has immediately, uh, I, I think it's worth being public. It gives a public company much better access to many more uh, ways of finance and cheaper ways of finance. Life is becoming difficult for smaller private companies. Being public still is something that helps. And with that, I think I would like to, to end this uh, panel, thank my panelists here.
continue doing what you do. We need you. You are a very important uh, part uh, of this industry. Thank you very much, and thanks, Captain Link, for organizing it, and thank you all for staying.